Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. You know, I thought I had already recorded an introduction to this episode. But then I accidentally listened to the last episode that I posted while I was trying to listen to the one that I'm presently working on. Just a fluke. And I realized that last episode was about prediction and control, which is fundamentally an effort to deal with the anxiety that arises in uncertain circumstance. And that's uh, where we are. So it kind of sent some chills up my spine. Uh, Jeff and I had recorded that many months ago. Because as I will mention in a minute, the way I typically do things is I'll record things and sort of put it into a queue and work on it. And I like to have a few things in the bag in case I don't have time to record anything later. So I'm sort of saving stuff and releasing it as I go, which means that quite often things are recorded months ago. Okay, here's this episode. And here we are. It's a different world. The way I normally uh, run this is I have a number of episodes in the can. So I had planned to present those, but it doesn't seem appropriate. In many respects, a lot of things have become irrelevant. So I suppose there's really nothing to do but to discuss the matter at hand. I think probably the primary thing that we're all experiencing is a tremendous sense of uncertainty. And at some point or another, that uncertainty is going to resolve itself into actual conditions. And I think we're all pretty well aware of what some of those conditions might be. So I'm not sure we really need to discuss that a heck of a lot. What does seem worth discussing is how to cope with uncertainty and how to prepare for unfavorable conditions. Because if it turns out that after six weeks, things go back to something resembling normal, then, well, we don't have to prepare for that. We're already prepared for that. We've been through situation normal. We know what that's like. We can deal with it. But now we're in the uncertain phase where we don't know how things are going to turn out. So, how does one deal with uncertainty? Well, there's a tendency to want to become certain when there's uncertainty. There's a tendency to want to know. There's a tendency to want to make up a story that seems most plausible or most favorable uh, or most beneficial. The same thing as favorable, I suppose, but some people will tell a story that is rosy to cheer themselves up. Other people will tell a 
positive story as a way of spinning a situation to try to gain an advantage. So there's a difference in terms of that. But all of these things are an effort to keep uncertainty at bay, to not have to dwell within it, because it's an uncomfortable place to be. It's somewhat equivalent to the water trigram, the abysmal water, where we have a sense of things happening, but we don't have a sense of where they're going, and we're not really sure where it's all come from either. So a lot of people will try to focus on where did this thing come from, and, you know, is it, there's a lot of theories, it could be a lot of different things. We don't know any of those things either. Right? And, and does it really matter at this point? I mean, yes, obviously, it would be an entirely different thing if this were something that accidentally escaped from the wild, if you like, or was due to some sort of poor decisions on the part of bat-eating members of certain populations, or if it was released accidentally, or perhaps intentionally. And, you know, there have been accusations flying all around. I think China has accused the United States, and the United States has accused China. So there's all different types of ideas about how to resolve the uncertainty about what happened. Never mind about what's happening or what will happen. But we can't resolve it. Even if we had the technical capability to really delve into the issue, which most of us don't, there would be so much political pressure brought to bear for it to go one way or another that those with the best technical capability are often severely compromised in whatever it is that they come up with. You know, which explains some of the pronouncements being made by people within positions of authority, both within the political and the medical realm, that seem unbelievable. But there you have it. So, as usual, we can't really rely on experts to give us a clear picture of what happened or what's going on or what even might occur. So uncertainty is the situation that we're in. Is that any different than the situation that we're normally in? It seems to be different. People have had some idea that there were things that they could be certain about. And perhaps there are some basics that we could rely upon for some period of time. But isn't uncertainty fundamentally a part of any picture? I mean, without a doubt, the, the natural state of being was fraught with uncertainty. If you think about what it would be like to live in the natural world without the protections of civilization, protections not just from other species, but from our own kind, the level of uncertainty without strong social institutions is really not unlike what we're experiencing right now. So you could say that on some level we're now being returned to the natural state of being. Which is that we don't know 
what exactly is going on or what to do about it. And I'm speaking not only about the medical issue involved, you know, we have some idea of what we might do about that. So there's a, a strong movement afoot to uh, lock everyone down, try and uh, flatten the curve, as they call it. And in this kind of a situation, that makes a lot of sense. Even in the face of some of the information that suggests that maybe this isn't as bad as, as it could be. Although there's an awful lot of information to suggest that it could be a lot worse than we might imagine. But the precautionary principle says, in this type of a situation, you should assume that it could be the worst that it could be. And so the kinds of precautions being talked about, lockdown, social distancing, all that stuff, makes a lot of sense. So, okay, so we have some idea what we might do right now. That makes a certain degree of sense. But I'm not just talking about the medical issue. I'm also talking about the incredible amount of uh, economic and social dislocation that's happening right now. I mean, we barely had a functional economy before. Now we don't have one. It's not a functional economy at all. Can a non-functional economy just kind of go back to normal after a few weeks of being out of it? Is it just going to be a few weeks? I mean, it seems with, you know, the kind of chaos that's going on right now, it's hard to imagine that a few weeks is going to do the trick. My supposition here is that efforts to ward off uncertainty are going to be, uh, well, they're going to fail. Or, or they're just going to um, lead us down paths that aren't necessarily related to reality which is the same as failing. You know, maybe a few people will get it right. Whatever it is they think is going to happen will actually occur. There's usually a few. I guess that's what they used to call profits, right? But it seems to me that the best strategy at, at first is to get comfortable with uncertainty, which is essentially the same as getting comfortable with being uncomfortable. So how do you do that? Well, I think it helps to recognize that that's the natural state of being. And that a degree of wariness and caution and care and trepidation is warranted, natural, perhaps healthy. And that the primary thing we need to do is to temper ourselves and become resilient in the face of anxiety. So how do we do that? Well, I think in many respects, this is what the wisdom traditions were teaching us to deal with. I mean, after all, these are ancient traditions. And so the people were living in a perpetual state of uncertainty. And so it might be said that meditation practices, if you like, I mean, that may be kind of a, a polluted term at this point. Because what, what passes for meditation now is someone doing a guided, so-called guided meditation, where they're talking about a variety of images to make people feel more relaxed. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about, like, the practice described in Patanjali. And if you haven't heard the episodes on Patanjali and you're not familiar with that 
unbelievably beautiful text. Uh, I recommend either, you know, get a little intro from the two episodes that I recorded on the subject or, or just find the text online. It's easily found for free. It describes a very specific practice where you resolve objects within the mind. So in a state of anxiety, the mind will generate objects for you to cling on to. The feeling creates, you could say, an activity in the mind, and the mind tries to construct a narrative to explain or pacify, and the mind will typically, if the anxiety is high, kind of obsess on these objects, obsess about, you know, this narrative or that, or sort of swing from one narrative to another, try to figure out all the options, or dedicate itself to one idea of what it thinks it needs to do. Or... So there's all this activity in the mind when we're feeling anxious or uncertain. And Patanjali talks about neutralizing the objects in the mind, neutralizing thought activity. That seems like kind of a tall order under present circumstances. And isn't that just sort of ignoring the situation? to neutralize activity? Well, not if you just do that as part of a practice to keep yourself together when things are increasingly stressful. So recognizing the situation, which is that we don't know, so it's a great deal of uncertainty, and that we have to deal with that uncertainty. Well, if we can't formulate specific plans and ideas... You know, maybe we can to some extent, right? But when it comes down to the big picture, like what I was mentioning before, are we going to have a functional economy? That's a big picture question right now. And I think a lot of people are really worried about it because a lot of people have no, no income right now. So even if it's only for kind of a little maintenance throughout the course of the day, as you're going along, noticing that the mind is obsessing and that it's wearing you out and you need to take a few minutes to neutralize whatever it is that that mind is doing and get to peace. There's a number of reasons for doing it. It's not a withdrawal from the world. It's taking care of your faculties. And it's also reconnecting to you know, in my opinion, it's, it's connecting to the divine source. Because when the mind is freed of its objects, it becomes a receptor. And in essence, it all comes down to survival. That's what we're all worried about. And the thing about the spiritual position with regards to survival is that it's not attached to the survival of the body. Ken Wheeler did a wonderful video recently. It's the kind of video that I've been hoping he would make. I'll try to remember to put a link to it in the show note description. He talks about the ancient Greeks concept of the relationship between birth and death. 
and it's related to his electromagnetic theory where he talks about space and counter space. So the physical uh, manifest world, you could say the, the world of the material, is where we exist. And he points out that the word exist is actually a really interesting etymological structure because it means exit the stance, exist, exiting the self in essence. It's like outside of the self is where existence is. And so it's interesting that Patanjali talks about the return to the self, the real self, the true self, not the one that's identified with a body, but the one that identifies with consciousness. And so you have existing in a physical form, and then you have being, which is disembodied. And he says that there's a relationship of transition between the disembodied and embodied states. And it has to do with one's attachment to the body. And that those who are um, Thomas in the Gunas, ignorant, or Rajas, I think probably all of the gunas actually, but so those who are under the sway of the modes of material nature, at the moment of death, they feel attached to the body. And when the grip that they have on the body starts to loosen, they're grasping. They want to hold tight to it. They can't find it. But the, that spirit in them is locked into that desperate reflex of trying to find the body. And so eventually they latch on to another one. And samsara is perpetuated again. Because they come back. But those who have achieved wisdom, who have found a spiritual connection to the greater self, to the one that transcends all of the bodies, you have an opportunity to not grasp at the moment of release from this body and therefore to not have to return to this existing world of suffering. The, the Greek and, and the ancient uh, Sanskrit are, are in complete agreement on all of this. And as I was saying, these were cultures that were more directly connected to the natural state of being. So they were preoccupied with how to handle the reality of the world they found themselves in, which was one of great uncertainty. And so regardless of whether or not it turns out that it's actually the truth, and my suspicion is that it is, but of course I don't know whether the state of dying is the thing that determines whether or not we're reborn. I don't know that for certain, but it sure makes a lot of sense to me. 
And it also seems like if you have to die, and of course we all do at some point or another, then it would make a lot more sense to die without feeling like you're gasping and trying to grab for the body that you can't hold on to. So all of this is just to say that the transition out of this life is not necessarily a bad thing, and the transition into this life is not necessarily a good thing. In fact, Wheeler describes the state of being of those who are grasping for the body as being hell when you're disembodied. So that doesn't sound good either, right? So it seems like the only you know, way out of the suffering, the cycle of suffering, is to accept you know, sort of like what the, the samurai would say is that they're already dead. And if you can accept that you're already dead, because it's going to happen at some point, and that point is going to be now in the future. <laughs> if you're listening to this, it didn't happen at this particular now, but there will be a now at some point or along, at some point along the line, that will be your time, and you have to go. And then it just comes down to a question of, okay, well, you know, what are you willing to do in order to hang out in this world? If it's absolute chaos and things really are, you know, road warrior style, what's your, what's your attitude towards, towards all that? Because, okay, you know, if we're going to look at some, sort of, some of the possibilities, right, we go back to normal, all good, great, right? All right. Things are, are different forever, from now on, like the economy just won't return, right? What do they do? Well, it could have that deteriorating kind of road warrior thing where it's just social chaos and, you know, everyone brings out all those guns they've been collecting and, and there you go. That's what it turns into, right? Or it could be more of like, you know, some people thinking, well, you got your totalitarian one world government, they change the currency, everyone's locked into some sort of a dystopian digital nightmare, Maybe it's not totally dystopian. Maybe it's, you know, some people are thinking, you know, China really nailed this thing, actually, that they did an amazing job. And the reason they did it is because they're an incredibly powerful government with a relatively compliant population who just freaking get stuff done. And, and they don't care if it's not profitable. It may be that that way of living is more well adapted to the world as it is. Is the United States going to go for that? I doubt it. We're just way too fragmented, polarized. I don't think we could agree to do anything at this point. Uh, I, that's one of the things that concerns me the most. I don't think our government's going to be capable of responding. And I, I don't think that it's just because of one side or the other. I think all, both sides and what other, other agents there are involved in the whole thing. It's just one gigantic sewer. I mean, what, what can you call it? It's been a very long time since this government has really represented the interests of the people who live in this country. I don't see them just all of a sudden getting it together and actually doing that now. But God willing, I'll be wrong about that. I would love to be wrong about that. I would love to see this crisis turn things around in this country, bring people back together, realize that, hey, you know, I don't, whatever amount of money it is that's being made is not worth destroying the fabric of society. But that's what they've been doing. They've been allowing people who make incredible amounts of money to destroy 
society, to destroy the government, to destroy everything, really, for money. So prospects, maybe not so good, tough to say. You know, and how long can each of us go without having income? Not long. I'm not sure I have much more to say about it, except it's a testing ground now for all of us. And I pray to God that whatever comes out of this ends up being a positive outcome in general for the state of things in this world. So that's the question to ask yourself. As we're confronted with whatever kind of scenario things play out into, is it more important for you to get what you want out of the situation or for the situation to improve? And if you had to choose between you getting some little piece of the pie, which is what everyone's been chasing after here, right? You cannot serve two masters. Sermon on the Mount. It's either God or money. And in this country, America, people have been chasing after their piece of the pie. It's all about the money. And this is the world that we now have. I'm not saying that, that that's what caused this, this uh, pandemic. What it has is it's produced a society that's incapable of dealing with it. That's what the love of money has produced. All the way along the line, people have been making decisions. Well, am I going to get mine or is it going to be for the betterment of the overall state of being? And we could say this is not just about humanity, but also about the natural world. You know, a lot of the social movements of the 20th and 21st century think in terms of whether or not things are good for people. And, you know, there's environmentalists there that, that are also concerned about the environment, but quite often it really isn't reflected on the degree to which what we want as a species isn't so hot for our environment. It's pretty obvious that we've caused an incredible amount of suffering within the biosphere. And then, of course, within humanity itself, there's an incredible amount of suffering because of the disparities now within the economic sphere. It's interesting to think about the words economy and ecology. Words are difficult to pin down. We use them as signifiers, obviously, and... And tracing the history etymologically provides an awful lot of interesting information, but, you know, sometimes the etymology isn't really very satisfying. And the poetry is far more satisfying. I mean, if you look up the etymology of these two words, they're obviously related, right? Ecology, economy. What strikes me is that, at least when I, when I look at the etymology and the... Uh, so Oxford Dictionary of English. Economy is the, the eco part is a house. And the nemin 
is manage. That's what they say. And, and in ecology, the eco is a house, and the logos is, is the study of. But, come on. Logos, everyone knows that logos is the Greek for the word, meaning the word of God. And nomos is the name, meaning the names assigned to things, like the words that we use, which means of man. Man assigns names, right? Like the, the, Tao is the, the Tao that can be named is not the eternal Tao. And when you name something, it reduces it. So when you say something is nominal, it's in name only. Right? So the economy is the house of things in name only. It's not the actual thing. It's an abstraction separated from the logos. Right? The house of God is the ecology. That's where the actual being is, you could say. So... The economy is, in a certain sense, by definition, something which is separate from but feeds on the ecology. So you could think of the economy as being a, uh, a circumscribed entity, like a, like a kind of like a, a cell existing within ecology, in the same way that like a sun exists within the universe. It has its own sort of mode of operation, feeding off of the ecology without any necessary consideration for the effect that it has on the ecology, even though the ecology is the thing that allows for it to exist. And this is typical of many systems. But it's not intelligent. It's ignorant. It's an ignorant way of going about things. And, and we see that expressed in, in various movements to try to bring ecological concerns into the economy. Ecological concerns have been left off of the spreadsheet in accounting. So they call it externalities, right? And there has been a, a movement afoot since the, the environmental movement, which interestingly is a, is a term that now has supplanted the concept of ecology, probably because they want to remove the logos, which in my mind means it's just going to be a failed venture. Because once you eliminate God from the picture, you've missed everything. So it just becomes another technical exercise, which means it's just operating within the realm of nomos, which means it ain't going to work because it's separating itself from the essence. On some basic level, every economy is non-functional because it separates itself abstractly from the, the basis of being. And in particular, an economy that does not take into consideration the most basic aspects of its effect on the world that 
allows it to exist is, is you know, it's not long for this world. And we think of the economy as, as being this incredibly mighty thing. But look at this tiny little virus that only has, you know, I mean, it's, it's serious, but it's like tw- only 20% have complications, right? And we don't know what the death rate is, but it's, you know, maybe 2%, something like that, 1%. It's more than the flu, but it's, it's, it's not like the plague, right? So, and that's all it took to basically bring the entire economy to a, a standstill of the whole world? What does that tell us about the robustness of our economy? It's an incredibly fragile thing. We constructed a house of cards. And all it takes is... One little thing to go wrong. And so it's obviously, we did not build this thing very well. So this is not managing the house well. If that's what the meaning of economy is, this has been a very poorly managed house. It's just not not structured well. Because the principles aren't there. Because it's about love of money. That's what it's built on. You can't have anything that's robust built on love of money. Nothing can survive on the basis of love of money. Or even money itself, because money is basically worthless. The only thing that makes money of any value is the fact that everyone agrees that it's worth something. And we may unfortunately find that out in a very, very painful way very soon. God willing, hopefully not. But, you know... All the possibilities are on the table now. So as we're all trying to figure out how to survive, we might want to ask ourselves these elemental questions. Try and get a sense of what's really important before we engage in whatever it is that's coming down the pike. God willing, it won't be as bad as some of us fear. But we should be prepared either way. Because we're already dead. It's just a matter of time. Spend it well. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.